Elaine Dewar, author, journalist, television story editor, blogger, has been propelled since childhood by insatiable curiosity and the joy of storytelling. Her journalism has been honored by nine national magazine awards, including the prestigious President's Medal and the American-based White Award for Investigative Journalism. Her first book, Cloak of Green, delved into the dark side of environmental politics and became an underground classic. Bones, Discovering the First Americans, an investigation of the science and politics regarding the peopling of the Americas, was a national bestseller and earned a special commendation from the Canadian Archaeological Association. The second tree of clones, chimeras, and quests for immortality won Canada's premier literary nonfiction prize from the Writers' Trust. The book she wrote before the one I'm going to talk about with go. her this afternoon is called Smarts, the Boundary-Busting Story of Intelligence. Her short essays and two serial novels can be read at elainedewer.blogspot.ca. Dewar has been called one of Canada's best muckrakers and Canada's Rachel Carson. She aspires to be a happy warrior for the public good. We are going to talk about her... We'll call it an expose? I call it an inquiry. An inquiry called The Handover, How Bigwigs and Bureaucrats Transferred Canada's Best Publisher and the Best Part of Our Literary Heritage to a Foreign Multinational. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Nice to be here. Let's start in 1906. Why not? That's when McClellan, Stewart, and Goodchild... I think it was. You got me. Was established, or yeah. And what they were doing back then was serving as agents for British and American publishing houses and basically putting their colophon on them. That's right. And I think they also may have been into textbooks fairly quickly too, which was another way that Canadian publishers actually made some money as opposed to starving and closing up after two years. So they stayed in business throughout the Depression, which is a, which is a good thing. Yep. John McClellan. The dad. The dad held it together. Then his son, Jack, went to war. Jack went to war. I think he was in a naval... I think so. Kind of reminds me of Kennedy a bit, because I think he captained a small boat. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what he did, but I think you're right about the Navy. And he came back like a lot of... Canadian service people fired up as a Canadian as opposed to a colonized somebody. And so fired up, he was brought into the company. As he got more control, he, it came to a point where he decided that they weren't going to be agents for other publishers anymore. They were going to focus on Canadian Well, yes authors. and no. They did still have a foreign rights business in, in that they acted as agents for foreign publishers in Canada, but it became less and less of an interesting part of the business to him, mm -hmm. and more and more just a way to make enough money to keep alive another year. The handover doesn't really tell the story of Jack McClellan. No, that's what we're doing right now. We're right. setting the stage. So I, I don't want to misinform your audience, but he clearly took it as his mission to create uh, a platform for Canadian voices that were distinct and that were telling Canadian stories, both fiction and non-fiction. 
-hmm. So he, you can say that he's in a way uh, one of the leading figures in the creation of the Canadian literary canon. Without him, there would not be a great number of very important writers. Found ways to support them. He found ways to pay them. He loved them. He loved them. He drank with them. He played with them. He partied with them. I mean, he really—he was an amazing character. Yeah, I think everyone that knew him was impressed with his passion for Canada. Yeah, and his lack of interest in enriching himself. Somebody told me a story about him selling foreign rights for his writers, not rights that he held, but helping them in the way an agent would yep. uh, to find themselves a platform in the U.S. or in Britain. I mean, he was really quite a remarkable person. Yeah, a, a truly great Canadian. Yeah. As you say, the fact that he was more focused and interested in encouraging and promoting Canadian voices than making money, that got him into trouble. Yes. Um, Obviously. He was in trouble continuously, and it wasn't until, I think it was 1971, that he found a way to turn his trouble into generating a desire upon those in control of the public purse yeah. to actually start funding Canadian writers and the production of Canadian books. And he did it in the middle of a provincial uh, campaign in 1971 when the Conservatives were nervous about losing the election and Dalton Camp, who was a very interesting guy, but Dalton Camp was part of a commission that was set up by the Bill Davis government to find out what was going wrong with Canadian publishing because there had been a number of sales of publishing companies. I think Gage was one of them. The Ryerson Press to yeah, McGraw the Ryerson Bill. Press. Yeah. And there was a sense that, you know, the bottom was falling out once again and that something had to be done. And specifically something had to be done about Canadian publishers creating Canadian textbooks. And in Ontario that was a huge issue. So the commission comes forward just as... Jack McClellan announces that he's about to go under, and he desperately needs help. Good and timing. If he doesn't perfect timing, and mm. if he doesn't get help, he might have to sell to an American publishing house. Then there were no rules about who you can sell to and who you can't if you're a Canadian publisher. Those rules followed in 1974, and interestingly, again, it was a political situation. It involved uh, the federal liberals trying to get back a majority government that they'd lost in the 1972 election and trying to appeal to the English-Canadian nationalists who were a voting majority, really, in Ontario at that Boomers. point. Boomers. People like me. Mm -hmm. People like you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the beginning of the uh, Wait, so nationalist you're, policy. You're saying that it was purely driven by the wish to get reelected as opposed to any... Deep national... Uh... <laughs> no, I think there were deep nationalists within the federal cabinet, but there were also contrary views. I mean, the Liberal Party, for years, was split down the middle between those who were continentalists who thought more integration with the United States would actually mean a profoundly solid economic future for Canadians, and those who thought, you know, we'd already eventually actually become like, I think I call it Puerto Rico North, mm -hmm. um, our business community intensely colonized by um, major American multinationals, especially in the oil and gas side of, the, of Canadian business. So there were those who thought within the Liberal Party, we got to get rules about who can buy and sell Canadian companies. And the 
literary rules, the, the, the rules about you know, Canadian publishers, sort of followed on that larger question. So the John Turner side of the Liberal Party didn't like those ideas. Pierre Trudeau was called a nationalist. I don't think he actually was. In fact, in, in another context, he was an anti-nationalist. Uh, but it was his government that put those rules through. He was a pragmatist, as yeah, many Yeah, get yourself elected, think. and then yeah. you can do what you need to do. Okay, so that was a stopgap measure because Jack got money out of he got money out of Bill Davis. He got about a nine hundred to a million a million dollars, and yeah, that was in the form of a loan. In the you know, the debenture, you call it, or is that the well, next one? Well, it is a loan. Yeah, I mean, and, okay. but the next one was a, an actual debenture under Ontario tax rules. Okay, but it, it it was not an investment. It wasn't we're buying equity in your company. No, it was, you know, here's a million bucks. Don't go bankrupt. Right, because you're doing an important work you're for doing, the country. You're doing something that is important. I think the commission said to the um, national sovereignty of this country, and, and you may- that's when. Canadian publishing became linked with Canadian sovereignty. That's, that's when we sort of crossed over from saying cultural is a nice thing yeah. to saying actually cultural is essential. Well, I mean, you could argue that the Canada Council and the Massey Commission was sort of moving in that direction anyway, right? But didn't actually get there. Well, they got quite a bit of money to start handing out. The Canada, Canada Council's Council. money that it was handing out was mere dribbles compared to a million bucks to Jack McClellan. I don't know about that. I know they started to fund universities. They started to... Yes, but to artists, to writers? To, to, no. Maybe not. No, directly, you're right. But I always... In fact, that's one of the quibbles I have here. I thought that, you know, Coach House set up in 65. Mm-hmm. They must have got some funding to do that. Or do you think they just did it on their own? No, I think they did. I don't know what funding they got. But you should remember, maybe you don't, that during the period of the first Trudeau government, there was a plan called Opportunities for Youth. And later on, I think in 1970 or 1971, there was an extension of that called LIP. So these were grants for young people who were looking to get employed. There was a recession, I think, in 1970. No jobs. Want to keep those kids on side? Give them a grant. So I'm I'm pretty sure that they were getting grants that way Mm -hmm. um, in the way that I was getting grants with a bunch of friends in a craft shop and gallery downtown in Toronto called Me and My Friends. That's how we funded it. We got grants. Okay. So you're saying, though, that the the bigger enterprise of publishing and nationalism really didn't get started until... 74. So... Things went okay throughout the 70s, or he was still no, struggling? Things were still... He, he struggled and struggled and struggled. His struggle never stopped. Yeah. Because whenever he got money and borrowed money, especially, I don't know how much you remember about the economy of the period, but there was a period where there was a very high run-up of interest rates. Yeah. So his, he was struggling just to pay the interest on his loans. Right. You know, and the loans kept growing, and the interest rates kept climbing. Less and less money available for books, and um, he got into serious trouble. And by I think 1985 is when he brought out the debenture that right. attracted Abby Bennett's interest. And the next year, Abby Bennett bought him out because he just couldn't take it anymore. And Abby really is the uh, the main character in our book. He is indeed. So. I'm trying to think why you wrote this. I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but it seems to me 
that you were really annoyed by the fact that Avi was doing something that gave him glamour and prestige. But then he got out in a way that was very beneficial to himself, but they painted it as if he was some kind of patriot. And the same thing with the U of T. Am I accurate in saying that the thing that really spurred you to writing this was that they were whitewashing the whole affair? No, I think what spurred me to write it was that I simply couldn't understand how this deal could have happened. Because we have rules. We have a law. The law says, thou shalt not sell a Canadian publishing company, and that means anybody doing a newspaper, a magazine, or a book, or distributing same, or selling them in a store, to a non-Canadian, unless certain circumstances prevail. Imminent bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. and the failure to find uh, another Canadian who's willing to buy you out of trouble. So what I couldn't understand was how it was that McClellan and Stewart ended up in the hands of Random House of Canada, now Penguin Random House of Canada, when none of those situations seem to prevail. Yes, and so we are jumping our head because because Avi Bennett uh, invested and then eventually and bought over. out Jack, right? Right. And took over. Right. And was in business then for how long? 15 years. And then for 11 years, uh, after he did this philanthropic act in which he gave 75% of the shares of a new MS, shorn of its agency business. Yeah, what is the agency business? The agency business is that in which a foreign publisher wants to distribute their product in Canada and they need a Canadian publisher to do it, so the Canadian publisher has rights to distribute their works in this country. Okay, so who is he working with, do you recall? Oh, everybody, but I, I couldn't begin to tell you that. Because I think Raincoast does that. Out in, in, Everybody uh, does that. They have to do that. So, so he gives, does this gift. To the U of T. To the University of And that's the question. So why would he do that? That's right. Why yeah. would he do that? Right. Why would he give 75% to U of T yeah. and sell 25% to Random House of Canada, a foreign-owned entity? Why wouldn't he just give 100% to U of T and his answer basically got down to, well, you know, University of Toronto Press was not very well run, and I needed to have some kind of uh, party who would do the back office and who would uh, basically run the company. So from the get-go, it was a very strange deal. Yeah, I think, I mean, I knew about it, and I just, and it, and it was, it was hard to explain. Why, why and why did he do that? And why did he need permission from the government of Canada? Because... is not enough to run afoul of the Investment Canada Act. So Mm. why did he go to Ottawa to get... Why did he say at at the press conference or to the reporters after, I've got, you know, government approval? Couldn't understand it. The more I thought about it, the more I couldn't understand it. But alongside, the reason why it really grabbed my attention was after 2011, when it was taken within the bowels of... Random House. In 2013, Penguin and Random House merged, and we ended up with this massively dominant company in the publishing industry in this country, with only basically two people making decisions about what it would publish. Now it's one person, then. Now it's one. And, And that struck me as just beyond bad, not only for writers like me trying to sell, 
because obviously when you have one major buyer dominating, advances fall to the floor, um, which means that people who do nonfiction like me can't do the nonfiction we want to do because it costs money. And if the advances go boom and hit the floor, yeah. you're out of business. You it's can't not travel, happen. you can't do you the can't research. You can't do anything. So the end result is you've handed over the nonfiction side of publishing to who? People publishing elsewhere who are being published in this country by Penguin Random House of Canada who've bought rights. Bertelsmann. Bertelsmann owns Penguin Random House of Canada. Mm. So yes, Bertelsmann. And the Canadian voices that have made a huge difference to the politics of this country suddenly are not going to be heard. They won't be in print. They won't happen. The, the books they want to do won't happen. Like who? Well, if you look at who was making good nonfiction books that were selling well, Linda McQuaig, I don't think, is working anymore with Penguin Random House because I guess her books didn't sell sufficient numbers. Stevie Cameron is working with a smaller publishing company. Her books require a lot of time and a lot of money. A lot of libel lawyers to protect well, her. That, well, we had to go through that too, mm-hmm. exactly. So if, if you sort of look at just at the bestseller list on the nonfiction side, lots of memoir, very little dig. Dig? Dig. Yeah. Stories that yeah. dig under the surface and tell you things that you need to know that you don't know you need to know until they're out there. You're talking right now. Yeah, I'm talking right now. But but this phenomena, I, I could feel it by 2011. It was really starting to concern me. Okay. You cite the fact. Now, this is, this is novels. But in 1951, a, an astounding 14 novels were published in Canada, in English Canada, and not too many more poetry books. I, you, didn't, uh, you didn't cite a number for nonfiction. But the number now you've cited is over 10,000. Right. So that, to me, doesn't sound like we've got a problem. Well, it depends on what those 10,000 are. I mean, if they're uh, books published by... Self-published? Yeah, self-published, I think, would be included in that number. Mm. The only way I can sort of describe to you my unease is by referring you to the bestseller list in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star over the last several years. And if you look at them, you will see that the numbers of produced in Canada nonfiction works very rarely make that list anymore. I'm talking the bestseller list, not the Canadian bestseller list, which appears under it. Yeah. Um, and that's because they're selling fewer than maybe five or 4,000 copies. They're, just, they're not breaking out because the majors, that would be Penguin Random House Canada, Simon & Schuster, which is a pretty small major, HarperCollins, aren't there behind those books anymore. They're coming out from small groups like Biblioasis, which published this book, uh, ECW, Dundurn. Their marketing money is slim to none. No, they can't offer advances of any size. And they're not buying shelf space. Right. And if you don't buy shelf space, what happens to the book? Well, that's another problem in the country is that we've got... Uh, a, a monopoly on monopoly. the bookseller side, yeah. too. Yeah. So... From 2010, basically, it became, well, when I went back and looked, really, the, the collapse of the publishing industry in this country starts in 2000 with this deal. The refusal to use the lawful tools in the hands of the government of Canada to enforce a Canadian policy began with this deal. And almost at the same time, 
The major book publishing chains are collapsing. The major newspaper chains are collapsing into the hands of two or three people. They, those two or three people are affiliated politically. Yeah. Put, a bit, put names to those. Well, I'm talking about Izzy Asper, who bought the Southern Chain, and then who sold the Southern Chain to Conrad Black and Ravelston, Hollinger. So right-wing liberal sells the major chain in the country to right-wing conservative. And very active representation of those views on the editorial pages of those newspapers. So when it's Izzy Asper, I think there was a, a missive that went around to all of the publishers of the various newspapers saying, you will take your editorial guidance from head office. And when, I think it was Russell Mills, who was the publisher of the Ottawa Citizen, mm-hmm. was fired yeah. because he dared to say that Krejcik should resign over Shawinigan Gate. Gone oh. goodbye. So politically connected and reducing in value. So when Izzy Asper buys Southern, it's $3.2 billion. When Conrad Black buys it, I think it's $1.7 mm-hmm. And I can't remember what the number was for post-media when it, when it goes essentially belly up and post-media buys it out of bankruptcy. Okay, but we're, what we're talking about is... McClellan and Stewart and books in we're your book primarily, about, but but you're just saying that the it's general part of a context yeah. and the handover deals with that larger context. It yeah. doesn't stop at what happens only with books. It looks at what happens to ebooks, the Kobo sale. That's right. Uh, that that was that million. goes through and it then again blink, no problem without a blink. Yeah. Uh, the Harlequin sale, which is yeah. books, huge, huge, no blinks uh, because. The people at Torstar, who are Canadian nationalists, took advice from Rob Pritchard, who used to be on their, who used to actually be CEO or president of the company, and did this deal with Abby Bennett, went to Ottawa and got an advanced opinion that it was okay that they sell Harlequin to HarperCollins, uh, provided they didn't shop it. In other words, they couldn't look for a buyer, but if a buyer came to them who was foreign, it would be okay. So 350 million bucks later, they do right. the deal. So they've obviously thought that it's not a problem for a foreign c- a company to, to own Harlequin Romance. Right. Why do you think Their it's a problem? Their argument was... Why is it a problem? Because it's a Canadian yeah, company, but, uh, and but there's it's a their... law that says it shouldn't be sold. Yeah, but it's their company. There's rules. Yeah, but what are the, what's the basis are, of thou the... shalt not sell a Canadian publisher to a foreign entity unless that company is in dire financial right. straits and no Canadian has made an offer. Yeah, but again, no Canadian made an offer for Harlequin because they didn't they didn't go look for one. Harlequin was making money. Yes, and so again, your what your concern is is that if you have a law, you'll be hired, they'll, enforce it. And if you don't want to enforce it, get it off the book. Get, get rid of the law. Because what it's doing is reducing the value of the Canadian publishers that exist. Well, that's right. They can't shop it they around. They can't shop it around. And, or they can, but the but number just of Canadians. buyers is really low. And their the cash in their pockets is not sufficient. And you call this the third rail. Yeah, of Canadian politics. Because no politician wants to touch this and right. say... It's kind of antiquated, and given the world we have today with the internet and boundaryless countries, it makes no sense. sense. You're simply saying, if it's on the books, they should enforce it. Right, and if you don't want to enforce it, get rid of it. So the conservatives wanted to get rid of it, but they had a minority government. 
and they were afraid to get rid of it. So they have this whole review, and then they back off. Meanwhile, they let deals go through. So you can have your cake and eat it too. Let the deals go through, keep the policy on the books, nobody gets upset, bingo. That's how we do things. So let's get back to this very specific deal. You, again, scratching your head, why did Abby not sell the whole thing? No, or give give the the whole thing to U of T. Just give it away. And the other thing is, they didn't even give it to the U of T press, which... Which they gave makes it to sense. The governing council. Yeah. So again, you there's all sorts of weird Weirdness. stuff. Yes. And that's what motivated you to, to get into this. Well, it, it struck research. me that somebody should answer these questions, and I kept waiting for my you know journalistic colleagues to dig and produce, and nobody did. So then we meet Deep Throat. There were several. Yeah, okay, but there's a there's a main deep throat in your book early on. And Chapter two. Hints uh, and allegations. He basically spills all the beans. He tells us he tells us everything. Yeah, but was he believable was my point. Well that's the and then throughout the book you take us on your investigative process, right. which which is fascinating. And it is a page turner. I'm glad you found it so. Maybe you could just uh, quickly tell us all the bad stuff that took place. The hints and allegations? (laughs) So the hint was two things, actually. That the tax credit that is earned when you make a charitable contribution, in this case, was rumored to be extremely high, but nobody knew what it was. Right. And somebody had to evaluate it. And somebody had to evaluate it. And he put that in the context of, you know... In this town, I can tell you stories about other kinds of contributions that are, in effect, fraudulently valued, and tax credits are issued, and and a rich guy walks away with more money in his pocket, and it's wrong. The other thing that he alleged was that McClellan and Stewart, under Abby Bennett, had friends in high places, specifically at the Canada Council, who were sort of funneling money um, in the form of grants improperly given. So grants given, for example, for a fiction are larger than grants given for a nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So they would reclassify a nonfiction book as a fiction book and hand over the money. Deep Throat said that when he uh, filed a... F- Who is accident, Deep Throat? I'm not going to tell Who you. Who is Deep Throat? I cannot tell you. So the, the problem here is that when he filed an access to information um, request... It came back with the proper information that, you know, these books were improperly granted funds when they were not fiction. They were non-fiction and they were given... Anyway, and he was threatened when he uh, raised hell about it. So... By who? Persons at the Canada Council, he tells me. So the next thing he claimed was that M&S got more grants from the public granting system, which is varied, okay? So there's Canada Council, there's Heritage Canada's Book Fund, there's the Ontario OMDC tax credit, there's the Ontario uh, Book Fund, which is managed by the OMDC as well, and there are the two arts councils, Ontario Arts Council and the Canada Council, which make grants on slightly different bases. So he said that after the transfer of McClellan and Stewart to U of T slash Random House, those grants continued, and they shouldn't have, in his view, because the question of control, who controlled this new entity, 
should have disqualified this new entity from receiving some, if not all, of those grants. So I said, well, how, how much money are we talking about? And he said, it's millions. So I leave his domain and think about, okay, either this guy's nuts or he knows what he's talking about, and if he knows what he's talking about, I can find that out. And so that was how I began the process of investigation, finding out how many dollars they did get, finding out the various definitions of control, of which there are many, finding out whether they qualified for all of the grants or whether they didn't. And when I was finished, it was clear they should not have qualified for the Heritage Canada Book Fund, which gave them the bulk of their grants. Yeah, the point is that the U of T was basically just a shell. They told the world, however, that they were the custodian of Canadian literary... literary literary institutions. Yes. Exactly. So they were bullshitting Canadians. In effect. And themselves. Yeah. And why were they doing that? Good question. Because in the actual agreements which affected this set of relationships, it became clear that on a certain 30-day period, five years after this deal was done, they could call what is called a put. And a put is an agreed-upon price for the transfer of shares at a certain time. They were only given a little window, though. It was only like a 30-day window. After five years to call the put. That's crazy. And if they called the put and Random House failed to A, offer to pay them five million bucks for their 75% of the company, uh, or fail to get permission from the government of Canada to get control of the company, then they were guaranteed five million bucks from Avi Bennett's company, First Plaza's Inc. Mm-hmm. So in effect, what seemed to be in it for them was, worst case, we get five million, we get five bucks. million bucks. And the strange thing is, why didn't they call that put? Good question. And the one set of documents that the U of T would not show me were the emails with regard to why they didn't call the put. I think I have figured it out. This is speculation. And the speculation is that the way the deal was structured, if Avi Bennett paid five million bucks for those shares, the debt that was owed by McClellan and Stewart to Penguin Random House for managing its affairs would not be paid. The debt would cling to the shares. Right. And U of T would be on the hook for 16 mil at the end of the day. $16 million of debt that Random that House accrued between built up... 2006 has, and 2011. 2011. And prior to that... Prior to that, the debt was much. maybe about $3 million. Yeah. So it escalated. At least that's the last numbers that I'm aware of. So it escalated rather quickly. Now, I'm sure that Random House will argue, yeah, but that's when the book business went to hell. However, they really shrank their production of books. So the costs would have gone down. The costs should have gone down. They closed down McFarlane, Walter, and Ross in 2003, so those costs were no longer there. It looks to me, and again, this is speculation, that there were advantages to building up that big debt, no Canadian publisher would make an offer for the company. But how did they build up that debt? Like, what they buy? I have no idea, because although University of Toronto owned the 
bulk of the company until 2011, when I asked for the financial statements, which they should have had for the entire period. The only financial statements they gave me were A, not complete, and B, cut off in 2005, which is the same year that the FIPA, the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act of Ontario, reached out to cover universities. So the financial statements which they had seen were no longer kept on their premises in case someone like me came along and asked to see them. So who's got them? Random House? Random House has them. And there's no way you can get a hold of Random House did not give me an interview. Right. How do you spend 16 million bucks? Like what they were they were making no money? Well, clearly. If you have a 16 million dollar debt. No, no, I know that. They're producing books. No one's buying any of the books. They must be making some kind of revenue. They may they may well have been making revenue, but um, clearly not enough. I can't tell you because I can't I haven't seen those financial statements, so I I have no idea how that money was spent. But 16 mil is a lot of money. Well, and when you added the 16 mil to the 5.3 that they paid for their 25% minority share, it comes out to 22 million and change, which is the exact value that was given when the company changed hands in 2000. Because uh, Avi got 15 million as a, as tax, a tax credit, but he got 5.3 million in cash from random plus out. 1 million in the form of a promissory note which was acted on I believe in the following year. Right. Would have had to have been. So it all kind of evens out in a yeah, nice way. Yeah, when you way, put it all it? together it comes out to 22 mil. Neat. Too neat. Very clever. Well, that's the thing. You know, that's why you've got a, cl- a clever husband. You're obviously attracted by cleverness. <laughs> yeah, I like you? cleverness. You I'm like sorry. cleverness. I do. And this whole this whole scenario was really was sharp. really a little bit too clever. Yes, but you have to admire it. I mean, Avi Bennett was a really smart business guy, and he did carry this company on his back for 15 years. He's entitled. You know, I'm I'm not going to say that Avi wasn't entitled to take money back. Because he, he must have spent a million a year, maybe two million a year, so right. he was debt-free. And, you know, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And why shouldn't he get something back? Why This is a business. Well, it's not a charity. He, yes. But, as I say, he's looked upon as being a great savior of Canadian literature. And he got $15 million in a tax write-off. Well, no, he got, we, don't, we don't know how much actual cash the tax credit works no, out to. It very but, much depended on First Plaza Inc.'s. Revenues, and, revenues, and yeah. and whatever taxes yeah. they'd already pay. I mean, we don't yeah. know, but we do know the valuation of the tax credit receipt, and that yeah. was fifteen point nine million, which is a lot of money. So it really was quite a little nut that you wanted to crack. Yeah, I wanted to understand how that business worked. Which brings us back to uh, books again. It also this this is a commentary on how. What a little town Canada is in yeah. terms of in terms of small who's rich group to whom. and uh, who does helping business. each other exactly. in and out of government. Yeah, there's a chapter in which I'm walking to the interview with Avi, and I'm just walking down University Avenue and looking at the names on the buildings and thinking about all of the connections that those names have to each other. 
and how important those names are both in the political structures of this country and in the business structures of this country, how much sway these guys actually have. And it's really quite remarkable. You could not have a walk like that in New York or London. wouldn't work. But in this country, we have a very small, extremely able elite who mm -hmm. help each other out. They are extremely able. But they don't seem to care about Canadian culture. Well, I'm no, not no. sure that's no, fair. No, no, I'm, I was going to say they, well, I was going to be even less fair. I was going to say they just care about it to the extent they can give each other. Do you know the phrase doing good by doing well? Mm-hmm. That applies here. It was the phrase used for the American missionaries to Hawaii who did extremely well by being helpful. These guys consider themselves public servants as well as private servants. They consider themselves advancing the economy of the country and advancing the political ideas of the country. I don't think that Robert Pritchard... Who's, who's Robert that. Pritchard? Robert Pritchard was the president of U of T when this deal was done. Brilliant, right? Very gold medalist in law. He was before that the Dean of Law at University of Toronto. He studied law at University of Toronto where his father was a professor. And he became a very amazing fundraiser for the University of Toronto. I can't remember what the number was, but it was apparently the largest hall of charitable donations of any university in the country under his aegis. He then left the U of T he became the president of Tor Star, which owns the Toronto Star, which is a very important newspaper in this country. He lasted there until he had a fight with his childhood friend, John Hondrick, who is part of the group of families which actually control Tor Star. And he went out and uh, Frank Iacobucci came in. Iacobucci had actually taught Pritchard at law school. They he, are now, he was on the Supreme Court? He was on the Supreme Court. He's a mm -hmm. wonderful jurist and a very, very interesting man. And is now a senior counsel to Tories, where Pritchard is the executive, non-executive chairman. Tories is one of the leading law firms, in, the leading law firm in this country, with very interesting political and uh, business connections. They're the brothers who really created the, the, the larger form of Tories, one, James ran the law firm while his brother was a consigliere to the Thompson Corporation. So the connections are so thick yeah. that just trying to pick them apart... Like a neur neuron right. uh, network. Neural net. Neural that net. There deep you are. learning neural net. <laughs> okay, but do they have their own interests at heart or do they have yes. Canada's interests? Okay, they're both, both the same thing. It's not One does not necessarily exclude the other. I guess the question is, you know, what kind of diversity of thought is being fostered now? None. Okay. And that's my biggest problem here. None. Right. And that is bloody dangerous. You cannot have a vibrant democracy when just a few little minds are in charge of what minds will be heard. It just won't work. It's bad. Okay. You can't make any money in publishing. So... What are you suggesting? That someone just, out of the goodness of their heart, set up another Canadian publishing company? Like, what's the solution? Well, we've got to make a decision whether we're going to protect publishing. But there's all sorts of grants that are going out yeah, now. Yeah, but not, they're not huge. There's, two, there's 200 odd... 200, 230 publishers. 
And I think it's 39.1 million. So divide that by 230, what do you come to? Not a heck of a lot of hay. I was asking for the solution. I'm not sure I have one. Because you're just a journalist, you're not a policymaker. That's right. Right. Elder daughter's a policymaker. Okay. So maybe my job is I to tell you. I should interview her next then. Yeah. Right? My job is to tell you what is and what yes. was. So it we, is not to tell you how to fix it. You're being like a poet in a way. I am. You're, yes, you are. You're... You're an unacknowledged legislator, but you're, you're, you're not coming up with a policy, but you're certainly flagging the issue. And you're doing it in a really interesting way because, because there's a certain outrage to your book. Yeah, there's I don't a like certain, lies. I don't a, like confiscation. Lies. They were lying to you. Me, my alma mater was trying desperately to lie to me until they finally got sense. And lying to everybody else, and that's yeah. not good. I mean, why would a major institution do that? Yeah. What the hell for? Well, what do they stand for? I think they had that conversation and came to that conclusion, what the hell for, give her the goods. But there's still a little bit of secrecy uh, oh, kind of tucked into this particular... Secrecy is something that the government of Canada does like no other. We're really good at that. Well, and also, there's this lip service to consultation. And is... transparency. Oh, the consultation stuff was just bloody awful. The one thing that I think may have resulted from this book is mm. that Melanie Jolie is no longer the Minister of Canadian Heritage. Well, I don't know. that. I think she screwed up in a variety of she different ways. She certainly did, but I don't think this helped. No, it didn't help, for sure. Okay. Who said to you that no one's going to read this book? Abby that, Bennett. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but the way you've written it, as I say, is it's, it is. It's a page-turner. It's a detective story. And that's what it was, and that's why it's structured in that way. Because I'm so entangled in this subject area. I, well, your I, livelihood. That's right. I felt I had to show my method. Otherwise, why would you trust what I'm telling you? Mm, yeah. I, I have every reason not to be open. <laughs> the future of my business relations with Penguin Random House are bleak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's why you're with Biblioasis. Yeah. Penguin Random House isn't going to publish this book. No, but obviously. aside from that, they'll never publish anything I write ever again. No. Even though Brad Martin is no longer there. Well, the other thing, too, is they paid $1 yeah. for 75% yeah. of the... Of a $22 million operation. Right. Yeah, that that's just mind-boggling, too. They have got the greatest backlist of any house. That's right, but you notice that they wrote the backlist down to zero when they did the deal. Which is just shocking to me. Yes, this was U of T. What did they do that for? I have no idea. They they went from 15 to 10 to... To zero. What did they do that for? Because in the unanimous shareholder agreement, the agreements that put this whole thing together, they stated how they would get a free market value for this company if it traded in the future. And that free market value did not include the value of the backlist. It wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't raised. It was strictly how much money in revenue is coming into this company on any given year. That will be the free, the, the fair market value. It's absurd. You know, anybody who, who knows anything about intellectual property knows that's nuts. What's the value of Margaret Atwood's The Hand, Handmaid's Tale? How much money has Penguin Random House made by issuing two versions yeah. of that backlist book over the last two years? It's been on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been on our bestseller. You know, that's that's coining serious money, and yet it was valued at zero. Isn't that bizarre? No, that's accounting. 
Well, accounting is bizarre. True. It's also, they can do whatever they want. It's a bit like statistics. Yeah. They can twist and bend and... Well, what I loved about U of T in the, in the way of twist and bend was that they argued in public that they were stewarding this company and that they had yeah. control and they told you know the federal government that they would not sell control to any other non-Canadian party even though they might be able to call themselves a crown agent and get away with it. In fact, six months later, their controller declared that they didn't have control. Yeah. So it yeah. went from, we've got control, to we don't have control, and nothing else changed in the interim. Nothing. So how does that work? And they did it really early on, They too. did it in January of 2001, exactly six months after the deal closed. The point of the book policy and the Investment Canada Act, whereas it pertains to publishing, is to protect the national sovereignty of the Canadian mind. That's the purpose. To make sure that there are Canadian conversations about Canadian issues, that there are Canadian stories that reflect the Canadian experience and imagination. Nationalism. Or Canadian, just a Canadian take on the world. Exactly. So, so that was the purpose of the policy. The policy is now basically ignored. Well, we now have we're, a getting, prime we're minister. getting trumpeting. We're well, hear all this trumpeting about how Canada's literature is the literature of the world. Right, because Canada is the first post-national <laughs> state, according to our Prime Minister, which yeah. is a silly doctrine. Canada, world, Canada first. Right. We're doing this in the world of America first, and Britain first, and Germany first, and Japan yeah. first. We're let's, counting no, the clock, let's, you know? Let's, let's just, first of all, roll back. I'm a fan of globalism and nationalism leads to some pretty awful stuff. Yes and no. It depends what kind of nationalism we're talking. If we're talking about ethnic nationalism, it leads to blood and gore. If we're talking about economic nationalism, I'm not so sure. There's nothing to suggest to me that the period in which Canada was most focused on economic nationalism, so 1974 to the first free trade deal in 1988, we didn't go to war. We didn't hurt anybody. Nothing bad happened, but the Canadian standard of living did indeed go up. Was that bad? The standard of living of writers in Canada is certainly... Went way up. Yes, but look what's happened in the last four or five years. Right. So as soon as we dumped the policy of we believe there's a national interest in supporting Canadian writers and publishers, that policy starts to die in the late, basically 1998-1999, when Sheila Copps becomes... Minister of Canadian Heritage. Let's say she forgot that she signed off on this deal. Now, to give her her credit, it's entirely possible she didn't see this deal. That this was done by her bureaucrats who had the power and authority to sign on her behalf with her name. You think possible. If you know about Ottawa, bureaucrats don't do a whole hell of a lot without... This isn't yes minister here. Oh, yes, it is. Well, that's one of the threads in your book. Is In fact, it's right on your cover about bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. We've had a very powerful civil service in this country. Some really interesting people yeah. who made very gutsy decisions. But how is opening the doors to foreign ownership of publishing a gutsy decision? Liberals who are on the right think that this was a disastrous and stupid policy that should be stopped. Conservatives on the right agree with them. 
liberals on the left, NDP on the left, do not agree. So the, the issue of economic nationalism has always been a great divider within the civil service, just like it within political parties. So Mr. Wernick, who is now head of the Privy Council, who was the guy in charge of the Investment Canada provisions of Canadian heritage during this period, and who went before a parliamentary committee trying to figure out what was going on with book publishing to say everything's fine, uh, just three weeks before this deal came to his attention, uh, three weeks before Abby Bennett's lawyers argued that they had to do this deal because you know the company was in trouble and there was no Canadian buyers and it was really bad and please help us. That guy is not a nationalist. He's a globalist. And he was then. Okay. So... As I say, this is a this is a story uh, about how Canada works. Yeah, and I, believe it or not, I love this country. No, and, I and while that. I'm thinking about how Canada works and its flaws and foibles, I'm also wanting to fall on my knees and kiss the ground because we're civilized, because we care about each other, because people who have every reason to only care about money actually care about their larger community. And even if their hearts are in the wrong place, their behavior is in the right place from time to time. You know, So we have a lot to be grateful mm. for, specifically until maybe a few years ago, the, the quality of our institutions. Yeah, I think that's the point you're getting at, yeah. right? So for God's sake, uphold the quality of our institutions. Make sure that laws are actually past that are going to be enforced, and if not, get rid of them, and do it in public, and have the arguments, and figure out which side you're going to take. Don't sweep it under the rug. Sounds like you're going to vote for uh, Maxine Bernier. <laughs> no. Oh, it's, it's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, except he's a libertarian, and libertarians are idiots. Well, they are. I mean, the idea that you don't need the support of the state to get through life is just silly. You do. Okay, well, I'll just read this out here. The truth is, I was no longer sure why I cared. I muttered something to Scott. Who's Scott? Scott was the accountant and business evaluator who was brought in by U of T to be certain in the issuance of the tax credit receipt that the value was what the value was. I muttered something to Scott about how it just seems strange to me that the oldest and best Canadian publisher, owning the country's most important backlist, had ended its days in the bosom of the biggest publisher in the world, in spite of a law devised to prevent that, in spite of a policy that says, telling Canadian stories, reflecting the Canadian experience is in the national interest. Our policy and our law have delivered us instead a great, big, foreign-owned publishing oligopsony. Yep. So right now, we're saddled with an oligopsony. On the publishing side, on the book-selling side, on the newspaper side, it's all the same story. Yeah, I don't want to leave this in just, we don't have a solution. I wonder... Well, it's interesting that the solutions that have been proposed by better policy people than me include the federal government really putting serious money behind newspapers, and especially investigative reporting mm -hmm. in the way of a fund, and so taxing, taxing the advertising revenue 
that Google is making off Canadians. Um, which, Facebook. And Facebook. Twitter. Which, Twitter, which presently goes untaxed and which is sucking up huge volumes of advertising dollars that used to go to Canadian publishers and yeah. Canadian television. No, these, guys, these platforms are doing nothing for all this money. Right. And so when you ask Melanie Jolie or the Prime Minister, well, why wouldn't you tax them? The answer is never an explanation. It's just we're not going to do that. No idea why. Other people tax them. They're taxed in the European Union. Why not here? Okay, we just solved Taxed the, in the United just, States. We, why not here? We well, just solved the problem then. Well, that's one way to solve a problem. The problem is then what do we do with all that money? Do we give it directly to the investigative journalists or do we do it give it to big media corporations well that's the issue because greenspawn who is the guy who brings forward this argument would rather it went to um, a foundation and the foundation hands it out for worthy projects which is sort of what goes on in the states now rather than giving it to major corporations because there's something really wrong yeah. about handing over tax money to corporations that are not yet you know completely bankrupt um, I think Torstar would say give us the money mm -hmm. we'll, do, we'll do good things with it and the Globe and Mail would say we don't need your money yes we're shrinking but we're not dead yet and the southern folk who are now post-media would definitely say give us the money but it would all go to paying off debt so don't give it to them. And what have we got in Canada for Canadian publishing houses? We've got $39.1 a year coming out of Canadian yeah. heritage. It's not enough. It's a ridiculously low amount of money. I mean, if you want people to be strung out there, never sure whether they're going to survive another year, then you fund a system at that level. Thirty-nine It's not even a rounding error in the Heritage Canada budget. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it hasn't really fundamentally changed for years. And... What publishing houses we have? We've got Biblioasis, we've got Dundurn, we've got ECW. We've got a whole long we've, list. We've got Gasparo, we've got Porcupine's Quill. Who owns that now? Somebody. Ten Inksters. Oh no! Us. Who owns it now? No, no, he doesn't. White? No. He didn't buy it? He didn't close the deal? He, the deal didn't close. Because he couldn't get the grant. That's right. Jesus. <laughs> See, he should have done something like said that he would produce fiction instead of non-fiction, then they would have continued to give him the grant. Which he should have pulled an show, Abby, an Abby Bennett. I was just going to say, which goes to show that he is not as smart as Abby Bennett. Absolutely not. Well, I'm, I'm, I, he may well be as smart. He just, uh, he just may be not quite as duplicitous. But there's a difference between working for Rogers... Uh, and being paid a salary, yes, and you know, being creating, an entrepreneur. absolutely. And yeah. Abby was a, a really excellent entrepreneur. Yeah, so we've got lots of small, small companies. Right we don't now. have a hope of becoming big because you know many of because them they are... can't get bank loans to expand because they don't make it because the banks look at their revenues and say what, and they look at their assets and say what. You know, the the only guy who I think has an actual asset is ECW, who I think bought a building. Jack David. Yeah. So we sort of come up with a solution then. Tax. Stoddard had another solution, which was that you should allow publishers to make use of a tax credit system the way movies do. So every project is its own project, and every one of those projects gets a certain amount of tax credits for the production side so that people could actually invest in books and write off their investment or at least get 50 cents back on the dollar. That's what funded the movie business in the early days in this country and still does to a large degree. 
because every book, like every movie, is a risk. You have yeah. no idea whether it's going to do you well. You don't. Or they're better. completely different beasts. Everything's aren't they? a. a it's, not it's a to, standalone, and that applies yeah. to Margaret Atwood's books just like everybody else's. Mm. She'll have a book that does really well, followed by a book that goes nowhere. You can't know where the zeitgeist is moving until you're in the middle of it. It's not like your commodity business. No, and with books, it's particularly difficult. I mean, as a magazine editor, my job was to know where things were going to be in three months so that when I assigned a story, it would be on everybody's lips when we published it three months later. That was my job. A book publisher's job is the same, but the time frame is horrendous. Mm -hmm. You know, for a nonfiction book, two years for this, yeah. and this mm -hmm. was fast. So you have to have a feel for where the future is going, uh, especially on the nonfiction side, but also on the fiction side. What are people going to want to read about in five years? Do you know? Yeah, but again, a great work is timeless. Yes, but it, if it hits right, everybody hears about it and they buy it. A great work can be timeless and unknown. It could take 10, 15, 20 years before 100 before years. Before anybody pays attention. Or a, a big movie's made about it. Right. So who's going to star in this uh, movie? <laughs> I don't think there's going to be a movie. The Handover. I think it'd make a great TV, made-for-TV uh, little mini-series. You don't think so? No, because the heart of the book is contracts, which cannot be made visual, no matter how hard you try. Uh, as I say, it's a page-turner. That's great. Anything else you want to say about uh, the publishing business, the Canadian establishment, uh, where we're headed? I would have said 102 days ago that we're okay, and now I think we're headed to the rat factory. 102 days yeah, ago? Yeah, 102 days ago Rob Ford was elected Premier of Ontario. I really did not believe that he could get elected, I, especially in, a, in an overwhelming majority. I mean, that's just well, again, really bad news. Yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? It's like, who voted for him? Exactly, and who didn't? Who failed to vote? Who, who just was too, too apathetic. lazy to go? So we're now stuck with uh, a Trump monkey for four years. It's going to be chaos, and, and you know we've already got a serious trouble with the guy on, on the south side of us. It's a very interesting time. All, all assumptions are getting pulled up from under us. Yeah. Doesn't make you real comfortable. Sure is entertaining, though. It is. It's true. Just like this book. And the book is The Handover, the author Elaine Dewar, publisher Biblioasis. What are you working on now? Book? A novel that I set aside years ago because it was too close, and it seems not to be too close now. So when I get my husband home from the hospital, and I'm not running every day, I'll be back at that. But I, there's no nonfiction for me for a while. I can't leave town, basically, because he, he's not well. And he's a clever guy. He deserves good care. Loving guy, too, I imagine. No, he's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. He's a great guy. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, I, I enjoyed it.